This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. I support impeachment. I think that he's done things that Richard Nixon never even did, trying to bribe a foreign leader for his own benefit. That's Sherrod Brown, the senior senator from Ohio. And that's just a little bit of the conversation we had with him about his new book, Desk 88. It's a series of biographical portraits of the senators who sat at his current desk in the chamber, that being Desk 88. That includes Al Gore Sr., Hugo Black, and Robert F. Kennedy. Our senior Senate reporter Niels Lesniewski and I even talked to the senator a bit about how he's feeling about this likely upcoming impeachment trial in the Senate where he would need to sit at Desk 88 and consider whether to remove President Donald Trump from office. That trial could get underway as early as January. Uh, Senator Brown, thank you for being with us. Uh, I wanted to ask first, you know, there are a lot of books that are written by uh, senators and other politicians, but there aren't as many that are actually written by them. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the process of actually writing this book? Yeah, I, um, 10 years ago, well, 11, 11, 12 years ago, as I, when I was on the Senate floor, choosing where to sit, the, it's all done by seniority. So there were 10 desks left for the freshmen to, to decide where we were sitting. And there, there are no really bad seats. You're not sitting behind a post at a, you know, at a Cleveland Indians game at Municipal Stadium. You're, 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 everybody has a good view. So I started pulling out desk drawers because I had heard that senators carved their names in the desk drawer. And I about the fourth uh, desk I looked at, um, it said McGovern, South Dakota, Hugo Black, uh, Gore, Tennessee, and just one word, Kennedy. And I, I, I asked Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, to come over and um, look at the desk. I said, Ted, which brother is this? And he said, well, it's got to be Bobby's because I have Jack's. And so I thought I wanted that desk. And I, my wife then sent away, she, she, she knows how much I like history. And she asked me to, she, she uh, went on eBay and well, just generally went online and bought about a dozen history books about the Senate, most of them out of print, most of them, you know, like $3 because nobody's reading this stuff. And I just began reading more about Senate history over time. As you'll see in the bibliography, I read about 160 books. I interviewed about 100 people. Um, it was a long project. I mean, it took me over a decade to write it, um, and uh, it, it's it's both in about half. When I was about, I thought done in maybe 2013, 14. I I had my wife. My wife read it, the the, the manuscript, and I, as I said, I thought I was done. And she said, not even close, because I had written the eight biographies of the senators, the biographies of each of the eight senators, but I hadn't really, um, I, I hadn't put myself into this book in terms of, of the perspective of a senator. So then I wrote began to write essays um, commenting on each of the eight biographies, using them as a starting point, and essays about the Senate today, about progressive politics, about um, public service generally, and then completed it early this year. That's perhaps a, uh, a hazard of being married to a writer uh, and a Pulitzer right, Prize right. winner at that. Uh, in well, Tommy she was Schultz. right. I, I, she, I mean, when she looked at it and she realized, and I, I realized in retrospect, I was kind of upset, frankly, when she said it's not even half done or it's barely half done because I thought it was pretty much done. And she the, she has high standards as a writer, and she made this she made me write a much better book, and she was right that way. 
Well, so some of the some of the senators profiled are uh, figures like Bobby Kennedy or or McGovern, people who are uh, very well known, but that's not universally the case. So, so how do you go about writing about a, a senator who is a relatively anonymous uh, sort of character, or at least not someone with the the long sort of record uh, in the public like someone like Bobby Kennedy? Yeah, I, they, um, first of all, I I didn't know all eight of them. I, I mean, I, I only. I, didn't know one of one of the senators I'd not heard of. One of the senators I knew very little about. T.F. Green I'd not heard of. of Glenn Taylor or barely heard of him. Um, McGovern's the only one of the eight I actually met, and I spent a good bit of time with him talking about his time in the Senate, and that's reflected in the book. Uh, the other is others are from reading and interviews. I would also point out that, and I point this out early in the book, that every one of these eight senators, for everyone's a Democrat and everyone's a white male. Um, there were not uh, there were no women that held this desk, to my knowledge, and uh, there were no African Americans that held this desk. In fact, I I would say that if someone sat at this desk five senators later, five fifty years from now, however many years from now, they would um, they would be writing about they they, they would and, and wrote about it. They'd be writing about women and people of color, and it would be a more progressive Senate um, because a diverse Senate is a more progressive Senate in my mind. Uh, so, um, but I, I show the the to find out about Glenn Taylor was the hardest to research. There's one book by him and one book one biography about him. There are there are, there are other historical sources, but I was able to locate his son. Uh, Glenn Taylor was married to a woman named Dora, and they had the Glenn Dora Singers. He was called the Singing. They were the Singing Cowboys from Kuski, Idaho, and their their son's name is Dora, spelled backwards, A Rod, like the baseball player. And I found A Rod, a retired dentist in Orange County, California, about ten years ago. I I found I found a way to find his phone number and called him, and he told me stories about his dad, including his dad in campaigning on the progressive party ticket with Henry Wallace in 1948, um, ended up in Bull Connors jail in Birmingham, Alabama for violating um, uh, segregation laws. So um, those were stories that came from his son and other piecing together other information about his very interesting life because he was a real character. He was a toupee maker, a sheet metal worker, a professional singer, and a one-term senator who ran for office and lost six other times. Oh, is that it? <laughs> that's that's quite a resume. I mean, that's it. It is sort of a hoot. And I'll, I'll, but, but he but he but one he did something that showed real guts. He was probably the gutsiest one of the eight. Um, he never at all backed off of his progressive uh, outspokenness and courage. He his first day of his third year in the Senate, he stood up and um, challenged the seating of the most awful. Um, onerous, insidious racist probably in the 20th century, a guy named Theodore Bilbo from Mississippi, and he challenged his his um, being seated for his third term, and uh, he won on the Senate floor and stopped him from being seated. And it took it took a guy that had that kind of, a cur- of courage to do something like that and, and, and made a real impact on the Senate. 
Uh, one question I have, Senator, uh, is, is about Hugo Black. I mean, most I think most folks uh, who had heard the name Hugo Black probably associate it with the Supreme Court and particularly some of its landmark cases like Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, but also there is, and you address this in the book, there is his affiliation as a young man with the Ku Klux Klan and how that is, you know, just this indelible part that you can never quite get past. And I, I wonder, you know, we're having this debate currently. I mean, we, we have, you know, people continue to debate, you know, the the appropriateness of Confederate statues and, and symbols, even like the, this current thing over Nikki Haley saying that the Confederate imagery was hijacked by Dylan Roof. And and I wonder, like, how hard is that, like, in, in our contemporary mind, you know, like a contemporary politics to put aside somebody's affiliation with something like the Klan? Was that, was that a tough well, one well, for the, you? The difference between um, Hugo Black and never for a moment to defend what he did early in his career, but the difference between him and uh, and Nikki Haley or pick, pick your person now um, is that Hugo Black spent the rest of his political career, certainly after five years in the Senate or so, the rest of his political career trying to make up for it. Uh, and you never do make up for joining the Klan. But 30 years later, he was burned in, in effigy um, in, uh, at the law school where he attended because he was one of the major drivers of the unanimous Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, so, and a leader in civil rights and human rights and a strong, he was Roosevelt's favorite Southern senator because of what he did for worker, working workers' rights. So, um, I, I don't, uh, you see, you see this sort of, I mean, I don't really want to talk about Nikki Haley, but because I just thought what she said was pretty awful. Um, but they, in, in no way does he try to defend any of those things he did. Um, he's trying to spend his career making up for it. And I, you know, they're, they're part of the, the most interesting parts of this book in many ways are the journey people made. Um, black from the furthest behind a, a terrible member membership in, in a terrorist organization to becoming what he did. Bobby Kennedy started off his first, I believe his first government job, certainly his first um, visible government job was representing, was, was working for Joe McCarthy then he later um, wiretapped Martin Luther King, but we know Kennedy for his empathy in the last, and if you want to make an historical parallel, the empathy of Ted Kennedy, of Bobby Kennedy contrasted with the emptiness and the lack of empathy of the sitting president I mean, we've never seen a president that lacks empathy the way this one does. I, I don't know any human beings that lack empathy the way this one does, but this president does. But Or you see Albert Gore, who was uneven on civil rights in his first decade, even against the wishes of his son and his daughter, his son, the future vice president, and his daughter, um, and who was later a public official, too. And, and then Gore was willing to lose his election by taking on the Nixon on the Vietnam War, um, voting for civil rights, taking on voting rights, voting, taking on Nixon on, the, on Vietnam, and then taking on Nick, I think Johnson on Vietnam and Nixon, and then taking on Nixon and two of his racist picks for the Supreme Court. So um, that's what I, I love writing about is how these people evolved into fighting for justice and civil rights and worker rights. Well, and one of the things I, I noted, too, about, about the book is that you're not, you, you also note that this is like none of these folks, you know, not only are they not perfect necessarily in their earlier lives, but they, they stumble, you know, mid-career, too. Um, you know, the, the McGovern stuff, uh, I was always fascinated, I've always been fascinated with McGovern and how he was able to return to work after getting, you know, shelled in the, in the, in the 72 election. And you allude to some of that. And I wonder, in, I mean, obviously you only have so much space, um, 
to work with. Uh, did you come across how anything, how McGovern felt as w- the nation was going through an impeachment saga in with Nixon? You know, yeah, during, you know, I, during I McGovern's time. I, I, that's one of the things I wished I'd done is talk more about McGovern to McGovern about impeachment because he was he was obviously still in the Senate then. Was uh, he in, in some ways he, he tells this he told me this story and I, I'm not the only person he's told it to I'm sure um, when he was talking to Mondale and this was in 1980 five or six and Mondale had just won only one state um, in the previous election, 84 against Reagan, one state his own in Washington and McGovern had won one state, Massachusetts and Washington and um, 12 years after McGovern's defeat was Mondale's and Mondale said to McGovern how long how long does it take to get over this? Kind of an um, embarrassing humongous loss like this and McGovern kind of wistfully looked at him and said I'll, I'll let you move, I'll let you know when it happens. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's funny, it's funny for us to say, but it's not so funny to them. And so um, I, I don't know. I don't know what McGovern, I don't, I'm sure that McGovern's talked about it and maybe even written about his feelings during impeachment. But um, other, I mean, McGovern, McGovern was proved right on so many things. He was proved right on his on the war. He was proven right on, on what he did for helping poor kids get food. He was, he was proven right um, about Nixon and his corruption. So he, but he didn't put, but to his credit, further credit, he didn't go around talking about I was right I was right I was right and wear that on his we could have worn that chip on his shoulder and he didn't seem to but I I mean I didn't know him only but I had enough conversations that I didn't I didn't see a bitterness I saw maybe a wistfulness about that that race but I'm also talking to him 40 years after the race may I ask you you mentioned all of the the various volumes of books some some fairly old and obscure and bought for three dollars off the internet Uh, is there are there any that stick out in your mind as, as a book that you would recommend for someone to read uh, if they're interested in uh, the Senate or in, in American government beyond uh, beyond what you've written, if there's anyone that people should pick up? Yeah, I, 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 nothing. The book that jumps out at me about what book to read was um, and it's it's probably because you asked me that question today. If you'd asked me two years ago or two years from now, I might come up with something different. But I, I the book that really had an impact on me had nothing to do with my book. I read it after um, my book was done. I don't think I mentioned the bibliography. It was Ron Chernow's book on Grant um, because it, it really changed my view about his presidency, that, that he really did most of the right things about civil rights, most of the right things about Reconstruction. Um, and um, history has treated Grant very badly. Um, he partly brought it on himself, but mostly he didn't. And that, that might have had the best impact. So if, if, if you're looking for one book about American history that, that had an impact on me, at least in the last five years, that, that would be it. Uh, books that I used here, um, I guess I don't know. I, I mean, the, the Robert Caro books are just good Senate history, but you got to read, I think there are five volumes of those. So maybe something a bit shorter. And, and here I thought you were going to say Proxmire's "You Can Do It" self help book. <laughs> I, I did. I don't. That, that, that would be it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, it occurs to me that you know after, um, you know, this this is one of those books that brings a, a probably not a small amount of kind of reflections of your own mortality and and your own place in history and so forth, and that someday you will leave the chamber and somebody else will have this this desk. If you're, you know, if, say somebody in, in 30 to 50 years, you know, they, they decide to do uh, Desk 88 Part 2, uh, you know, what is what is, what is going to be the, the chapter, the portrait on Sherrod Brown? Yeah, I, I guess I would um, 
probably say, and you can kind of read that in this book, that the things I'm most proud of, the thing I'm most proud of is that is the, the whole idea of dignity of work that people, um, that people in this country should, in any, any society, um, that, that work, that work has honor that, that, um, Dr. King said, no work is, is me, no job is menial if it pays an adequate wage. And, um, and that, that comes through in this book in a couple of ways. One, I just write specifically about dignity of work, but also in, in my, my, the way my mother taught me about about treating people equally, about learning people's names and calling them by their last name if they're older than I am, especially um, when I was younger. Um, in Matthew 25, that when I um, I quote the, the quote that so many people know what you did for the least of these you did for me, and I, it's clear to me that no religious leader would say someone is worth less than another. And I found a biblical translation that uh, a, a, a poverty and justice Bible is called what what you did for those who seem less important you did for me. Um, and in 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 more substantive, tangible terms, uh, the expansion that Pelosi and I did a couple of years, three, four years ago on earned income tax credit and child tax credit, which will put thousands, a couple thousand dollars in the pockets of a whole lot of people that are making twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. I can't think of anything more important than that, um, comparable in some ways to what McGovern did on feeding the poor in the developing world and getting getting a hot lunch to every to to one 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 hot meal a day for millions of kids around the world. It's that kind of thing that is most important to me. Uh, one one last question, Senator, before we go. I mean, it, in sure. in the in the likelihood that there is a a, a trial. I mean, the, most senators don't actually have to sit <laughs> that long for that extended a period of time uh, in in their desks. Um, you know, are, what is what is going through your mind as you think about maybe having to spend six days a week, eight to nine to ten hours in that seat without having to be able to talk too? What's going through your mind on that? We're not only supposed to sit there for this whole trial; we're supposed to remain quiet. And there actually is in a um, that I, I just read uh, about halfway through. It's a pretty short little volume. Written in 1986 about the, the the process of impeachment written it's, a, it's an official Senate document um, written by the Rules Committee in the mid 80s about impeachment and and one of the things it says if I could paraphrase is is every day the the Secretary of the Senate I believe believe comes in and says hear ye hear ye uh, senators must um, remain silent under the penalty of imprisonment. Um, so it literally says you're not supposed to talk, and if you do, you could go to prison. I don't know that anybody has, because I'm sure that that many senators have not kept quiet entirely mum for those periods of time. But this is, but I, I, I put put any any levity aside. This is really serious, and I would only admonish my colleagues and each other, all of us, that no matter what you think of Trump's character, whether you admire him or despise him, whether you respect him or or don't. That um, this is about the Constitution, and all 100 of us should go into this with an open mind. This is a trial. Um, I support impeachment. I think that he's done things that Richard Nixon never even did, as a, as a trying to bribe a foreign leader for his own benefit. But I don't know. Once I, I, I reserve judgment on how I will vote, whether that's reached the standard of high crimes and misdemeanors, and is and he should be convicted, removed from office, or not, based on what I hear 
in that chamber when the when the trial starts. And second, what I hear from the prosecution, the House managers, and what I hear from the Trump lawyers or Trump himself, then we make that judgment. I would hope all 100 of us would go into that with an open mind. Uh, nobody should be saying that we're just going to dismiss this or we're just going to vote to convict. I mean, all of us should have an open mind and listen to the evidence as it's gathered and presented. Well, Senator, thank you so much. Your book is out uh, on bookshelves and on Amazon and and all that kind of stuff. And we uh, wish you luck with the book tour. And thank you very much for for taking some time to talk about it with us. Good. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Political Theater. Thank you to Niels Lesniewski for uh, for bringing Sherrod Brown onto the program and for... uh, uh, bringing this book to our attention. Appreciate it, Niels. Thank you. And thank you, Michaela Rodriguez, for producing this program. And thank you, Jillian Roberts, for pushing on the the right questions. I appreciate all of the uh, teamwork that went into this. You can find this podcast and previous episodes wherever you happen to get your podcasts, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever. Thanks for listening. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.